0: so how, how's everything over
1: there hey i'm really good things are things are cold here in melbourne australia it is the middle of winter here so all my northern hemisphere people that i follow on instagram are at the beach and having time off and out of the gym running on the beach with their shirts off and i'm here in my puffer freezing cold raining miserable but it's okay i don't mind the winter you, you get warm coffees and hot chocolate so i'll survive
0: cool man cool so first of all like can you introduce yourself for the audience
1: yeah absolutely so my name is jacob Tobart, but uh most people know me online as vbt coach these days which is kind of my uh presence and branding i suppose you'd call it um i am a strength and conditioning coach with about 10 years experience working largely in the private sector so i work at a gym called core advantage that works with junior to professional level athletes we send a lot of athletes from australia over to college so we help them develop and get ready to handle the physical side of that. Um, but more recently, I've become really passionate about this velocity-based training idea and concept. And I've sort of moved from a coaching role into a sport, a bit more of a sports science role, but with a marketing and sort of outreach and branding type twists. Because at Core Advantage, we're now building an app called Metric BBT, which is a free velocity-based training solution that you can download on your phone. No need for hardware. So my role now is a lot less with the coaching hands-on uh, and much more with the actual you know, doing research into velocity-based training, looking for best practices, ways to apply it that work across populations and for different contexts uh, and then making content around that. So writing blogs, videos, being on podcasts, um, all kinds of stuff in that space to spread the good word that is velocity-based training. But not with a, oh, you have to do it, it's the only way. As more of a, it's a great complement to other methods. It works within lots of systems. You can use it a little bit, you can use it a lot. So while, you know, I have a bias, I want people to use velocity-based training, I want people to use my app, I'm also aware that it isn't a silver bullet, it isn't a magic solution. There are layers to it and there are different ways to apply it for different contexts and not all of them work all the time. So it's about balance.
0: Cool, cool. So what made you interested in velocity-based training at first?
1: Yeah. So we had a, um, we had a device in the gym. So I've worked at this gym core advantage since uh, I graduated my degree in 2013 and we had a device really early on 2014, 2015. I was just playing with it and just really liked the idea. It's like, it makes so much sense. We measure load. We measure set. we measure reps. We measure rest times. Sometimes, um, you know, we might measure seconds on an isometric exercise like planks or, you know, uh, calf raise isometrics, things like that. But not often do we measure what's going on inside each rep. And so, velocity based made really good sense to me. It's like, oh, well, we can measure what's actually happening inside the rep. You know, every millimeter, every centimeter of range of motion, we can see what's going on, where the athlete accelerates, where they're decelerating, um, where the effort's being applied, how much tempo, how much time of tension, time under the tension is being applied during the eccentric. So, how well are they controlling the eccentric, the pause phase, things like that. And we get a much more objective and detailed picture of what the lift includes, like what's actually going on. And so, You know, uh one broad example is like the number of tonnage. You know, sets times reps times loads gives us a number called tonnage, which you know, thousands of kilos per workout. But that tells us nothing about the quality of that workout. So how much power did we produce, how much time and attention if if bodybuilding hypertrophy is the goal? Um, how much force was produced, how close did we get to our one RM? So using a number like velocity, power, range of motion, these kind of metrics allow us to dig deeper into the set in an objective way not just a i want you to slow down and then the athlete goes yes coach and they do it but go i last set was you know 2.2 second eccentrics now i want you to do three second eccentrics or you you know you lifted that weight on the concentric at one meter per second let's try and get 1.1 let's really try and rip that bar and really explode through those cleans or that that trap bar jump whatever the case might be
0: so uh like you mentioned like you work with tons of people like athlete so uh, let's say what kind of like people should be using velocity-based training for whatever training? Yeah.
1: Um, I think almost anyone can get benefits out of velocity-based training. And I think I should caveat that by saying not the same application. Um, and I think a better term to think about what I, how I think about velocity-based training is the idea of velocity tracking. So velocity-based training insinuates we need to base our training on velocity. So everything needs to be speed-based, like how fast can you lift it, can you lift it faster, intent, power-type training, things like that come to mind. But if we think about it more like velocity tracking, we're just tracking the velocity and range of motion comes along with that, power comes along with that. If we're just tracking velocity, that allows us to do a lot of things. So we could track velocity and try and lift slower. Which might be really good for, say, learning motor learning and uh, you know rehab settings, or even bodybuilding hypertrophy type settings, uh, or we could be just trying to chase intent. You know, the the more classic option with BBTs like you know, team team field, sp- field sport based athletes. You know, we're lifting weights. The top weight you lift isn't necessarily as important as how explosively you lift those middle weights. So you know, loads around peak power, maybe slightly above that dynamic effort type range. Right. last week you lifted that at 0.7, can we go 0.72 or 0.75? Just lift it a little bit faster. So field sport athletes could use those kind of applications. And then I think there's also really good applications for things like powerlifting and the strength sports. So if you're a powerlifter, we, there's a lot of work and a lot of research and I'm going into RPE and you know reps in reserve type systems. And I think they're fantastic. I've used them myself. I really like the idea, but I think adding velocity to that and having velocity integrate into a reps in reserve or an RPE type system, gives you objective feedback to go with that. So you can get readiness data from your warm-up sets, for example, that'll help you just adjust those top sets. Maybe it's a really good day that things are flying, it's moving really easily, push that top set up, and then you'll surprise yourself. You might get a little more out of it than you think. So I think depending on how you slice it, you can use velocity tracking ideas across almost any type of training. And like you need to control the metrics. So if you've got a bunch of junior athletes, having them chase max power when they've barely even learned how to do a trap bar jump and then just having them fling the bars around is a terrible idea. That's dangerous. That's going to cause more harm than good, but you might use it to track range of motion. And so on their, on their front squats, on their backs, whatsoever it might be, you might have them go, let's just try and hit a really nice consistent range of motion as you're learning this, you know, for our four sets of 10, you need to have 99% consistency for range of motion. So they learn how to hit good depth, whatever good depth means to you. And do that every single rep, nice and consistently. And then, as they progress, as they get stronger, all right. Now let's chase some power numbers or some velocity numbers, as well as that range of motion idea.
0: So basically, you have to like uh, teach them the good net technique. Not like not like there's anything as perfect, but good technique so they can like perform it very well. And then we use velocity based training or velocity chat training to like, uh, maybe like clean, let, let them like clean flash faster or like squat faster. Right. Yeah. I think something like that.
1: Yeah. that, that that's, a, that's a good summary. I think, uh, trying to speed up shit movement, excuse my French. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Of course. Of course. Oh, I can. <laughs> oh, great. All right. I'm an Aussie. So that, that works well for me. Um, I think trying to speed up crappy movement, if you haven't mastered a movement, it's just going to make that crappy movement crappier. Yeah. And it's also going to open you up to a whole bunch of risk. And it's going to, so in like you, you learn, you learn a lift. So you start training coach, teach you lift. We're going to do four sets of 10 back squat, clean, trap, or jump, whatever you learn that movement. You go, okay, cool. I've gone from the bar to 40 kilos. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good enough to lift a little bit of load. And sometimes a little bit of load actually helps you learn because it gives you a reference point to work against. Um, but if you rush from that, we always like that. If you rush from that 40 kilos, that sort of, you know, one star level one lifter, if you rush from that and try and go from 40 kilos to hundred kilos really quick, you might be able to do it and you'll get there and it'll be fine. But the compromises you made along the way will really hurt your ability to go from hundred kilos or you know, 200 pounds, whatever will really hurt your ability to go from hundred to 150. So you'll plateau earlier because you haven't laid a great foundation. And I think velocity based training as alluring as it is in those early days will will exacerbate that problem it will exacerbate that need to hurry up and rush to get to sure. you know, from one level 1 to level 3 but that will then slow your ability to get to level 5 sure. so you know, arbitrary numbers here but I think so I think yeah using other metrics in those early days to help in, uh, objectively improve the quality of your training is a, is a, is a wordy you know mouthful of a sentence but really quantify the qualities you're chasing. So if you're a big believer in full depth squatting, having your athletes track range of motion on their squats with a velocity tracking device can be a great way to go, okay, for this athlete of this certain height, 60 centimeters is your full depth squat. 70 centimeters is your full depth squat. The rep doesn't count unless it's under, seven, you know, above 70 centimeters. And you keep doing that and you only can go up in weight if the range of motion consistency is great, the tempo is great if you're chasing pauses, things like that. And then only once, you know, they're at one times body weight, 1.5 times body weight, do you then go, well, oh, they field sport athlete, so intent and explosiveness is important. Well, let's go into an explosive phase and worry about velocity. So you in those early days, you might not even look at velocity in velocity-based training. You're looking at tempo, eccentrics, range of motion, um, all those other kind of qualities. And then you might sprinkle in the, the intense stuff early on or later on, but I think, putting it in early and just having everyone go let's compete let's just try and lift these you know moderate weights as fast as possible even though we haven't earned them i think is, is a poor use and i think that's often one of the um one of the arguments against velocity-based training is it makes lifting sloppy and it makes yeah. people rush rush their eccentrics yeah. and bounce yeah. the bar around it should not be like that and i think yeah. changing from velocity-based training language to velocity tracking language might help with that as well i think that's cool. one of my little missions i'm on at the moment
0: cool so that's kind of that's like kinda like the like what's what's happening right now in Taiwan because like tech like uh let's say velocity based training or velocity tracking, sorry, or like force play, something mm-hmm. like that is like uh getting more interested in here. So there's a lot of like coaches want to like use their like tracking system. But you just see it on like Instagram, like Facebook. It's just crappy movement. I mean, the skill was like shit, man. But they still want to like lift it faster mm. or like yeah, or lift it heavier. And even when they're like training, like uh, like high school kids. I mean, why? <laughs> what do pop? The skill was like shit.
1: Yeah. That's that's a great question. It's like, literally, what is the point? Like, what are you trying to achieve with these messy, mushy things yeah. that you're tra- you're calling power training? But it's like, clearly, this athlete has not earned power training.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. So, uh, you brought up an interesting thing, which I was going to ask on your Instagram, is like range of motion. So how do you think like range of motion affects the velocity?
1: Hugely. It's um it's a big uh thing that I'm on at the moment with, with social media is is talking about the idea of individualization within <laughs> velocity-based training. So I'm six foot two, six foot three. Uh, I'm gonna lift I'm gonna lift through a different range of motion and at a different velocity because of that range of motion than a five foot four power lifter. They're gonna lift a lot more weight than me. If we you know make it relative or make it absolute, because I've got longer to travel, I've got longer to accelerate the bar. So I've got more time to apply acceleration to the bar before I have to decelerate and you know at the top of the movement. So on to a back squat, for example, we both squat to below parallel depth, but my below parallel depth is a 65 centimeter squat. For that athlete, a below parallel squat, they might have a wider stance as well. They might, you know, have better mechanics and a lower bar position because they're you know an, an elite level powerlifter. Their full range of motion squat might only be forty-two centimeters, so that's you know thirty percent less than mine. So they've just got less time to accelerate a same you know a one times body weight, a two times body weight load. They've just got less time to do that, and less cent- literal centimeters to move that bar. And so they won't be able to achieve nowhere near the same peak velocity that a taller athlete will achieve. And as a result, the means will be compromised as well. So when we look at say load velocity profiling within that. If we, these two athletes side by side did a relative to body weight or relative to one RM um, load velocity profile, it would just be completely different because all of my squats are covering 65 centimeters each. So I'm doing more work. The absolute load is going to be less too, because I'm not as strong, because I'm not, you know, because there's less efficiency when you go through further range of motion. And so our load velocity profiles are just going to look different no matter how you slice them. And so for us to then try and lift to the same fixed velocities, for example, at 80% or at the strength speed zone or, or whatever it might be, it just won't work because my strength speed zone is going to be maybe 70% of my one arm whereas theirs might be 90% of the one arm. or the other way around. You just don't, that's just hard to tell because different lifters are going to apply different forces and different things through the range of motion. So it it leads to a need to individualize things and customize based on your population. And you might create buckets, you might have you know tall athlete a tall athlete bucket and a small athlete bucket or a middle sized athlete bucket and then everyone works within zones within that. But I think if we try to put our seven footers and our five foot five, you know, our gymnasts and our NBA centers in the same bucket for their velocity zones, and then have them try and lift the same, they're just going to lift different percentages. They're going to apply different levels of force, and so what in trying to put them into the same absolute velocity values, their different range of motions will lead to different outcomes. So I think it, the the idea of having a fixed velocity is 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 impossible due to range of motion. And so, therefore, it violates other principles, like you know, lifting above eighty percent of one RM to be a strength stimulus. It violates those other ideas, and so it then becomes like a dichotomy. It's like you either have to pick velocity zones, or you have to pick percentage of one RM as, as as core principles. But they should be able to work together, I think. And I think uh, individualizing around range of motion is the key to that.
0: Cool. So you mentioned like load velocity profiling, and it's kind of like a little bit different with a force velocity curve. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit deeper about this?
1: Yeah. So um, load velocity profiling, we should should go back a step, is where you uh, have an athlete. They do say, for example, a uh, 40 kilo, an 80 kilo, 100 kilo, 120 kilo set, or even just a single at each weight. And we get the velocity of each of those loads. And what tends to happen is we create a pretty linear profile. So there's a nice linear downward slope where the heavier you lift, the slower the bar moves. And it's a nice linear thing. It's well proven. It's linear-ish. So at the the ends, it gets a little curvy and becomes sort of quadratic or parabolic or or exponential. Um, But in the middle bits, you know, so sort of 20% to 80% of your 1RM, it's pretty linear. So as you lift heavier, it will slope down in a linear fashion. That's a load velocity profile. And you can use that to predict your 1RM quite nicely particularly in powerlifting it's quite nice to do that a little again a little trickier with the uh, tall athletes and your short athletes with range of motion affecting the ability to find that one or in value but i digress you can do other things over there as well so you can develop what's called a curve score which is kind of the total surface area of that profile of the shape of that curve um, and a few other different numbers and things like that and so that's a testing tool or it's a uh, Uh, profiling tool performance tracking tool use that to measure performance over time. you can collect one of those every single workout from your warm-up sets and and find that curve score that estimated 1rm and then track performance over time so during your session without doing a single extra set you can be profiling and performance testing every single one of your athletes just automatically using velocity which is a really cool idea that is not the same though as a programming tool so it is a testing and performance tool that allows us to see progress over time by aggregating all your sets together and finding a metric and a score. But when it comes to programming, we can't program lifts, you know, a bench press, for example, we can't program 20% of bench press to try and target speed in the upper body because the range of motion on a bench press is just too short. That yes, we can use it as a testing tool. So we can do a 20, 20% of 1RM rep to find velocity at that and use that to determine the profile. But that doesn't mean that 20% of 1RM bench press is a good quality stimulus. It's a warm-up set. There's not much value. You know, I can bench when my shoulder was good. I've hurt my shoulder recently, but when my shoulder was good, I was benching about 100 kilos, 105, 110 kilos for my top top singles. And so that was okay for me. I've got long arms. I'm not a great lifter, um, but that was okay for me. So 20, 20% of my one arm is about 20, 25 kilos. That's the first warm-up of my day. There is no value other than increasing body temperature and loosening up my joints on that set so for me to then go well that's you know one 1.1 meters per second to me then go okay i'm going to do six sets of three at 20 percent for my speed development that's a terrible programming decision considering there are other tools so i could go do throws with a med ball i could go do slams i could go do get in the smith machine and do bench throws and then throw that 20 kilo and actually release it because the bench press has such a short range of motion and because you have to hold on to the bar you can't let go of it like in a smith machine or with a ball you have to decelerate the bar as well so the top third of the lift is actually deceleration it's slowing down so that your back doesn't fly off the bench and you hurt yourself so there's no it's not a great power speed development exercise so just because we use it as part of the profiling doesn't mean it's a good prescription and a good programming idea so Bench press is a strength exercise. You should use it for strength development. So I should be working up towards that 100 kilo maximum that I have. Not exactly 100, but, you know, 80%. So 80, 80 kilo, 85 kilos, and more, that's where the work sets start. If I want to develop speed, if we now start talking about the force-velocity curve, the idea of a curved relationship between force and velocity expression, that's zooming out another step. So that's not just exclusive to the bench press. That's all upper body exercises. So the force-velocity curve, peak velocity for the upper body, if we are talking about pushing and throwing is a baseball pitch, that's peak velocity. And that's miles different to a 20 kilo bench press in terms of velocity achieved in the arm and in the muscles. And so you, you got momentum and elastic qualities coming into this as well. So I think of the force velocity curve more as a conceptual broader picture of all possible movements for that movement pattern, your upper body push is the example we're using here. And then the force velocity profile, so a profiling tool or low velocity profile rather, sorry, I should get my terms right, is a testing method. But that 20 kilo set that we do in the test doesn't make that a good prescription for your work sets if you want to develop speed in the upper body. Did I, I think I covered, that's kind of where I'm at with that. So the, to, I suppose I should bring it back and get my terms right here. The force velocity curve is a concept and a sort of a prescription tool and a guideline in terms of, okay we're developing, we want to develop velocity in the upper body. Well, we should throw, pitch, launch, slam, things like that. If we want to develop strength in the upper body, we should lift heavy, slow, grindy, lots of force production. But that doesn't mean that's just exclusive to the bench press. That includes benching, push-ups, explosive push-ups, banded bench press, med ball throws, wall ball throws, pitching, throwing, launching, slamming, anything you can do upper body fits on that force velocity of not just the bench press
0: love it i love this so that's uh those are the things you mentioned for like the upper body how about the lower body
1: in terms of the force velocity i think the same
0: yeah the same concept you just because like when you talk about like uh bench press basically you say one third of the movement is for deceleration right
1: I don't don't quote me on that number. I don't know if it's exactly a third, but okay. I know it's a lot. I know it's a okay. bunch.
0: Sorry about that. But that's okay. I mean, there's gonna be a certain uh range for this deceleration. But when you like do things like let's say like twenty percent of your warm and squat, it's kind of the same, or like thirty percent whatever it is, or deadlift. it's kind of the same for lower body, right? Absolutely, so how do absolutely. you deal with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the magic number, I believe, is 75 or 76%. So at 76% of your 1RM, that's where the lift, a closed lift, like a squat, bench, deadlift, uh, row, things like that, at about 76% of your 1RM, that's when it goes from having some portion of deceleration to being 100% acceleration. So above above 76% or 77% that's the number where a lift can become pure acceleration where the load is heavy enough to decelerate itself effectively you don't have to actively pull it down for most exercises there are exceptions and, and each individual will be, will be varying but around that point so as you get lower and lower below 76% the percentage of the lift that is decelerative in that you have to hold the bar down yourself actively it gets more and more so at the 30% 20% it's going to be a significant portion of deceleration if you apply complete intent so when it comes to the up, the lower body, there's a really simple way to get around this, which is that instead of decelerating, you just explode and you leave the ground. So if we take a squat, squatting is great above maybe probably 65% of one rep, particularly if you add bands. So if you do a band and add accommodating resistance, the band will decelerate you and that will hold you down and you can then apply acceleration against the increasing force because the band is stretching. If you want to do squats for more explosive, more on the speed end of things, turn it into a jump and actually leave the ground and let gravity do the decelerating for you. So that way you can accelerate through 100% of the range of motion, reach lockout at maximum peak velocity, moving super fast. And then when you leave the ground, gravity will do the job of decelerating and bringing you back down. So 20% on a squat, maybe maybe if I'm a 100 kilo bencher and a 200 kilo squatter, not great ratios, but let's just hypothetically. So that means 20% of my 200 kilo squat is now 40 kilos. That's a great load for a trap, for a squat jump. So on my 40 kilos, if I want to chase that sort of really explosive high end power type development, 40, 50, 60, maybe even a 70 kilo squat bar, squat jump is now how I can get around that. And I can train sort of peak power with these light loads by changing the exercise and making it explosive, opening up the range of motion and, and circumventing the need to decelerate the bar. So I think with the lower body, there's a bit more freedom because with the upper body, you can't really bench, let go of the bar and hope to catch it. That's pretty dangerous um so balls are a great example for the upper body but for the lower body you just turn a close exercise like a squat or a deadlift into a jump or we've got that beautiful middle ground which is the olympic lifts where you can use a bar you maintain contact with the bar all times you don't have to leave the ground so you don't have to land landing can be risky and adds extra extra load for certain athletes um but the olympic lift allows you to stand on the ground and pass that energy into the bar the float phase the bar again, gravity does the work for you and then you catch it on your shoulders, up in the the air, or you don't catch it and you just do a shrug, like an explosive uh, hang pull shrug or something like that. So we can apply intent and let gravity do the deceleration for us in all these examples. Then the other example that's important for lower body in particular is uh, we need to consider elastic contractions. So plyometrics, sprinting, bounding, things like that, which allow us to build speed and momentum within the rep that we can't do with things like a squat or even a squat jump. So on that force velocity curve in the lower body in particular, elastic, repeated, accumulated momentum type exercises like sprinting is a great example. Top speed sprinting happens somewhere after 20, 30, 40 meters into the race. So you need those first 40 meters to get to your maximum velocity potential. So manipulating how open and free and repeated the exercise is allows us to change how much velocity we get. We just can't do that with a barbell. So, the barbell is limited to how low on that force velocity curve it can go in terms of its effectiveness.
0: Cool. So I'm not saying not saying like the idea of like velocity tracking or velocity based training is bad, but I'm gonna quote the number. so uh, if if my athlete couldn't like let's say, let's say usually we're gonna squat our athlete at two time body weight but if my athlete is like what, what we were discussing, they can't really do that movement that heavy. So we can like probably just teach them the movement and try to load them properly. And if we really want to do something like uh, fast, accelerated, accelerate probably like like we do things like you mentioned, like sprinting, jumping, or like Ball, that kind of stuff right yep. even for lower body
1: yep. so just like if the goal is power we change the exercise yeah yeah that, cool. that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense to me I
0: appreciate it i really like this <laughs> <laughs> because because there's always gonna be like crappy movement out there <laughs> Shit.
1: and crappy movement is a continuum like it's not like it's perfect or it's horrible each coach has and each gym and each system has a different tolerance for what they like. And like, it's never, it's never going to be 10 out of 10 all the time. And if you only ever accept 10 out of 10 every time, you actually won't get much intent and much, much effort into the lifting. So sometimes maximum effort, like the best sprints will sometimes look ugly. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying you should go out with your one RMS and bend your back and get all twisty and wobbly and stuff like that. You should still lift crisply and within your constraints, but know that, you know, above an eight out of 10 is good enough for most things, most situations and context dependent. Like that's a very broad general statement, but that's kind of how you need to think about it. Like, yeah, if you're Olympic lifting and you're chasing maximum power, that's going to be tough. They're going to have to work. And every now and again, they're going to have a little bit of a catch. that's all not quite perfect. Or they're not going to bend their knees the exact amount. or going to hit the hips a little higher, a little low, like things will change. But again, if you lay good foundations, like we talked about at the start, if you lay good movement foundations and good technical models early, your athletes will be more robust and more aware of those crappy reps. If we want to call them that and be able to correct and be like, Oh, that wasn't so good. Yeah. The output was fine. But if you keep doing it like that, we'll slip. We won't be able to get to that next level that we want to chase. Yeah. Um, And on your point there as well with chasing power, just shifting the exercise, that's not to say that velocity tracking isn't helpful for max strength. So, you know, powerlifting, even athletes who want to develop max strength in the off-season, even in this season, using velocity to sort of uh, measure your proximity to failure is really important. So if you're in season, you're an athlete, you don't want too much proximity to failure because you want to stay fresh because you've got a game in two days or whatever it might be. So avoiding too much failure within the set. So, so staying away from your one RM velocity. So lifting with a little bit of speed and leaving some reps in the tank with things like percentage fatigue and things like that can be valuable too. Um Along the way. And also, you know, at your top end weights, there's still, you still can track and tra- chase good velocity on those lifts relative to that load. So your 200 kilo deadlift is never going to be fast in absolute terms, but you can lift that 200 kilos faster today than you did last week. Yeah. And so I think that is also a form of progress. You might not have got a new PB, it's equal, you know, you did 200 kilos this week, you do 200 kilos again next week, but if you do it a little bit faster, that suggests that 205 or 210 kilos isn't too far away. We are still making progress. That estimated one arm goes up and that predicted sort of curve score idea goes up as well. So even at the heavy stuff, tracking velocity and using that as a you know, motivation tool or as a readiness tester is still a valuable thing.
0: Appreciate it, man. Thank you for bringing this up. So next next thing I want to discuss is like uh, the velocity zone. Mm. So post a some in some like really interesting post on Instagram talks about like the velocity zone, the way you see things a little bit different with than others. Kind of like talk to everyone about this.
1: Yeah, where do you want to start? The whole the velocity zones is a big topic. <laughs> um, should we start with the, the existing model? What 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 cool. exists currently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it was originally developed by Dr. Brian Mann, and I believe he's been on your show, hasn't
0: he? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so he is the godfather of velocity-based training. He is an absolute genius. Some of his concepts and ideas, and some of the early research he did in this space, is phenomenal. So this is, in, and I want to that caveat is really important. I, but by no means do I think he had a bad idea, and it's all his fault. Like that. Quite the opposite. I think his idea was genius. I think it's been misinterpreted and poorly applied. So I've done a few of his courses. I've watched a lot of his videos on velocity-based training. He and Brian, please please reach out if you if you see this and correct me if I'm wrong. I'd, I'd love to make sure I get this, this correct and I don't want to misquote. He developed the idea of the velocity zones using his football teams, his college football athletes. And he used it on the, the back squat. So powerlifting comp, regulation back squat and a conventional deadlift. And he established across all these athletes, lots of athletes, lots of years, he established kind of this idea of we want to do dynamic effort work so we want one of our lifting days to be strength focused you know trying to get one rms trying to get really heavy loads and the other day to be more explosive so more moderate loads more around max power things like that and so he worked out that on these two lifts for this population that about 0.75 meters per second was a good velocity for them to be chasing and the idea was that by setting a velocity 0.75 we'll use that and setting a a zone within within which to lift you achieve two things. Number one, you motivated the athletes when load wasn't the goal. So on the heavy day, it's pretty, pretty obvious. It's like last week I did 180, this week I got to do 185. Like it's pretty easy to objectively chase that with plates. But when it comes to the dynamic effort stuff, the coach says, no, I want you to lift it faster. And so faster is a qualitative value. And the athlete's like, yeah, but I want to lift heavy. Like last week I did 185, I want to do 190. So with the dynamic effort day, he set this zone of 0.75. I want you to lift at 0.75. I might not have the number right, but that was the idea dynamic every day. We're chasing a velocity. So it motivated them. So now they had to keep lifting more explosively to keep adding weight and still be above 0.75 meters per second for mean velocity. So that was number one. It motivated them. The second thing was it auto-regulated. So on the days when they're a bit more beat up and a bit more tired, the load at 0.75 meters per second would be lighter because they just couldn't create the power because they were fatigued. So power and speed drops Quicker and further under fatigue than strength does. So you can usually grind things out when you're tired, but you can't pop through things. So you can't be as crisp under fatigue. And so the idea was you auto regulate it and you motivate at the same time. So the athletes push themselves to try and chase bigger weights at that velocity that he set. And then they um, auto regulate. So on the days when they were tired, the load just physically wouldn't be as high. Worked brilliantly. Fantastic idea. Dynamic effort training with numbers, objectively, athletes chasing that. Fantastic. For the squat and the deadlift brian specifically says in some of his research that he couldn't apply this to bench press though because the velocity zones were different the 0.75 number did not work on the bench press and so what i've seen and what sort of i've sort of read beyond this is that people have taken this idea of a specific velocity zone 0.75 for footballers for squats for deadlifts and they've applied it to everything and so it's like well yeah. We need to take this 0.75, and they called it speed strength or strength speed, which is another topic we can talk about shortly. But they've taken this velocity idea of a fixed value 0. 0.75 and gone everything needs a bit 0. 0.75. Lift doesn't count; it's not power unless it's 0.75. But it's so context dependent that 0. 0.75 for one individual, tall versus short, like we talked about before, different lifts, it just doesn't work that way. And so, what this wasn't the intention for, for Dr. Mann's work, but what's happened is now people when they think of velocity based training they think oh that means I have to lift above one meter per second and there's become this sort of myth that oh if you're a track athlete all your squats need to be above one meter per second if you're a basketballer you should only lift between 0.75 and 1.0 it just never should have worked like that it was a specific model for a specific context on a dynamic effort day and so on the strength day they got after weight they didn't get after 0.75 and so from that came the idea of, of bands of zones so 0.25 to 0.5 was strength then you had accelerator strength and your speed strength and strength speed these kind of things attached to different values and so athletes think and coaches think that they need to only lift within those values across all their exercises but it just doesn't work like that like you go back to the range of motion talk at the start that's the number one factor is just like my 0.25 meters per second is going to be completely different to yours compared to an elite powerlifter so For some athletes, that idea, so the top zone is 0.25 to 0.5 meters per second, but some athletes can lift below 0.25 for even like 90% of the one around, like they're really slow, technically grindy lifts like the sumo deadlift, for example, is a great example. So those athletes, what they get a new zone that hasn't actually been written yet. And so does that mean their top zones have to shift? Like it's just the values shouldn't be fixed. They should be flexible to follow the athlete. And they should also take into account things like maximum power, so the point of the maximum power curve where you achieve that, what load, and also percentage of one RM. So your eighty percent of one RM, uh, you know, which is typically the classic point where strength training kicks in, if you will, um, should be factored into this model as well because it is a variable that will affect the stimulus that's happening. So, not a huge fan of the five zones and how widespread they've become because I think while it was a clever idea, and while it is a clever idea, and how it was initially applied it's been sort of taken and stretched and made a general overall principle, which it, it never was supposed to be. And so I've kind of come up with the idea of a, a different three-zone model, which is, has simpler terms. So it's strength, power, and speed, more connected to things athletes are aware of and athletes already are talking about, hey, coach, I want to get faster. Hey, coach, I want to improve my speed. I want to become more powerful. So it's connected to language that's easier to communicate with athletes, particularly in a field sport setting. Um, And it takes into factors more than just the velocity on the bar. So it takes into account the power. So where you are on your uh, max power curve, which is more, instead of being linear, like the load velocity relationship, the load power relationship is more uh, parabolic. So it's curved. So it peaks somewhere in the middle. Again, depending on the exercise and the individual, it's somewhere around 50 to 70% of 1RM. So if you want to train for, you know, what Brian Mann called dynamic effort, speed, strength, you should probably focus on the power number and be lifting around the load that, maximizes the number of watts you can produce let's just change the number let's focus on the number that's connected to the quality you want which is power and wattage if you're lifting for strength you should probably have a loose idea of what your one rm is and then be hitting your sets above 80 percent of that and probably lifting at an eight rpe so it's more than just the velocity of the bar that will determine whether a set is a strength stimulus or a power stimulus and so we just use a few more factors and a few more variables within the model And make it individualized based on your 1RM and based on my range of motion, things like that, to then develop better programs that fit into existing models. Because I think the big problem with the the speed zones is they are their own model and they kind of, if you follow speed zones, you can't follow other models because it breaks them. So if you believe in starting strength, accelerative strength, and speed, strength, strength, speed, you can't then also believe in percentages of 1RM because it violates those principles because they will not align appropriately and so i think that is a big issue and that becomes a big um a big friction point for people using velocity in their training if you can marry velocity principles up with existing principles percentage-based training rpe things like that then it becomes easy to adopt and becomes more relevant oh yeah i get that that works with you know rpe rpe8 is about 25 percent velocity loss cool that makes sense i'll start looking at that number and start playing around with that so individualization and fixing to existing models which already work like percentage based training kind of works rpa kind of works so we don't need to throw them out we can adapt and mold them in
0: yeah uh uh, uh i have to like the, the, the time i talked with dr brian Mann. he mentioned that He's gonna train tons of people. I mean, literally tons of people. There's like
1: hundreds of footballers. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's yeah, hundreds of them. So, and at the same time, so you can't really like like do things like what what we just mentioned individualized. It's it's gonna be difficult. I mean, I mm. I don't I I don't know how to like do that at the same time when you train like hundreds of people, but I mean. It's really brilliant idea, but like like you said, it's happening like everywhere. I think,
1: and, and to yeah. to be clear, like like his application, his idea was brilliant, and he did the work, so he didn't need to individualize. He looked at yeah. hundreds of footballs and gone, shit. They all lift in this dynamic effort zone around 0.75. Yeah. So we'll, like why individualize given you've got a pretty homogenous group. Male yeah. footballers, so they're all big, yeah. they're all strong, they're athletic, athletic yeah. college level, so all the same age, all lifting a stand, they're all doing powerlifting level squat and it's conventional deadlift. That that is your individualation. You've you've done yeah. it, you've looked at your population, you've looked at what they express, you've set a number, like that's the whole point. But the problem is that doesn't apply to basketballers, gymnasts, yeah. powerlifters, uh, it doesn't apply to the barbell row, doesn't apply yeah. to jump squats, doesn't apply to trap bar, doesn't apply to sumo, bench press, like. The idea is sound, but the stretching it is inappropriate. So you could apply the same rules to upper body training. You just need to do the body of work to work out what basketballers, bench press, velocity zones are going to look like, and then do the work that he did to establish customized zones for that lift. And that then becomes complicated because now, well, I've got basketballers, but they're juniors. I've only got teenage basketball. So do I need a different zones to what they established in the NBA or college, which is where I think this whole model and the widespread adoption of it has broken down. Yeah. It just can't be used that broadly. And so therefore, hence, I came up with a new, more flexible individualized system, which I think is more relatable and more. It's like, oh, yeah, strength, power, speed. Yeah, cool. They're the three things i want to work on. And to be honest, the speed zone within the three zone model is really actually where you should just be doing throws and plyometrics. Like you, yeah. you shouldn't actually be lifting in the speed zone. You should be doing elastic work or explosive work so you know trap bar jumps maybe fit into the speed zone but they're probably actually more the bottom of the power zone uh if you're in the speed zone you should be bounding sprinting elastic repeated jumps hop skips things like that or throws um for the upper body
0: well while, while you were saying this i was looking at your like your post about like the velocity zone you write down but anyway love the idea because there's like a podcast i heard from I think it's Pacey. Rob Pacey did it with uh, yep. Dan Baker. And they were talking about... They were discussing about velocity-based training. And there's a Czech athlete that Dan was training. His one RM was like... The velocity was like 0. 0.4 or something like that. I mean, yep. if you apply it to like the existed existing uh, velocity zone, where you, there's not heavy enough. But I mean... Mm. Probably just could that was his speed, man. He yeah,
1: like he just long, long femurs, long legs, fast yeah. twitch profile, not much of a grinder compared to like, say, a powerlifter or a footballer. So he can't get like, and that comes to the idea of I think this is another Brian Mann concept is the idea of neuroma- neuromechanical efficiency. So the more neuromechanically efficient you are, the slower your one arm will actually be, which is a good thing. So the slower your one arm can be, the more you can grind out heavy stuff. So I've seen powerlifters will do a deadlift at 0.06 meters per second yeah which is like crawling up your shin it's like a four second yeah. concentric phase yeah. it's so slow but they're just they're able to maintain position maintain tension yeah. and continue grinding through a rep so it almost becomes an energy system problem not a strength problem but for yeah. the normal lifter on a deadlift uh your one arm is gonna be more like 0.25 so four five times faster than that 0.6 so they are five times four times slower than you and able to maintain lift because if you're not if you're not neuromechanically efficient you'll break you you'll you'll drop the bar you'll you'll reach a sticking point and you won't be able to push through it so you need enough speed to get through sticking points that's the key here and so powerlifters crazy strong people are able to maintain tension through the sticking point with less velocity Hence the efficiency point of it. They're efficient through that point of their lift was, you know, mere mortals. They get hit, you know, touch the bar on their chest for a bench. They go to lift and they just hit that point. They go, no, nah, I just not do not have enough speed to get through this point. And so they fail. Um, yeah. The better lifters don't fail. They keep grinding and wiggle and shift and, and Jimmy their way through that sticking point, which, which changes their load velocity profile and it changes the whole relationship. Yeah. So that, that track athlete, their one arms at point four, you know This deadlift is at point oh six, so you know, eight times slower. Their zones are just going to shift, and they should shift with exactly. that.
0: Yeah, true. So last thing before I let you go, okay? Uh, this is also I heard from the podcast, and I talk with uh, Mark Young. And Brian, Doctor Brian Man about this, is like when we train max strength. Let's say we stick with the usual velocity song, and usually it's gonna be let's say we do squat, and usually it's gonna be like zero, uh, zero point three five, right? At the first set, at the first rep, and it's probably gonna drop to like zero point three. Mm -hmm. And probably below 0.3 after the third, like 0.28 or 0.25, right? But usually when we train max strength, we're going to stop at like when the velocity drop was bigger than, greater than like 50% or like 20%, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Depending on the goals and depending on time of season and things like that, a percentage velocity loss between your fastest rep, usually your first rep of the set and the, final rep of the set which is where you you know that's you know first rep is all about intent and like how, how explosive you can move can you set new personal bests last rep is all about that proximity to failure so how close did you get to your 1rm speed that we've been talking about and so yeah so point if you go from 0.35 down to 0.25 for example um what's that's like a, almost a 30 percent velocity loss so that's a tough set that's a grinding tough set so you're maybe RPA 8.5 something like that so i usually connect those percentage velocity loss back to an up I might not use RPE specifically, but connected back to the you know, broad idea of RPE. Um, and so, yeah, with strength stuff, if you're in season, you might not want a super high RPE. So you might want more like 7, 7.5. And then if you're in the off season, you actually do want your athletes to grind it out a bit harder and go, yeah, let's, we want RPE 8s and 9s. Powerlifting, as yeah. you get close to competition, you probably yeah. want RPE 10s. You want to really push some really tough singles um, as you get close to things, but then control your volume if the intensity is really high. So you don't do many. Don't do many work sets and don't do many total reps at that intensity.
0: So, uh, so if I really want to like train like max strength or really want them to like get stronger, I we should like at this point we should probably just ignore the velocity loss and uh, as long as the athlete had good technique, good movement, we should still train them right.
1: Uh as, as a broad topic uh, might be a bit, a bit tricky to simplify but, that much,
0: but, but, but I mean, for only for, uh, let's say off season and mm-hmm. we really want our athlete to like train harder to get their max strength. But yep, other than you- this, I mean, other than max strength, if it's in, in season or like one change, uh, speed or that's, that's different.
1: Yep. Yeah. So if we're building strength in the off season, um, Strength is as much a skill as it is a physical quality. So the skill of expressing strength is just as important as how much work you do at strength, if you will. So if you go into the gym and you, you know, this isn't a recommendation to do this, but if you go into the gym and you build up to a, a top weight and you do one rep at the heaviest weight you've ever lifted, so it's a training personal best or personal record, you're done. Like you've achieved your goal. You are now stronger than you have ever been. You've lifted more weight than you ever have. You're done for that session the problem and the tricky bit with when it comes to strength training is it's not just about one effort and one session you need to find strategies to build strength efficiently but also maximize the and optimize the session so that you can develop as much strength as possible so if you go to the gym build up to that one rm and do it that might work for six weeks you might be able to set a new pb five out of those six weeks and going on but that might not set you up for the next six weeks optimally Because you haven't done much volume, so you haven't built much, maybe peripheral, you know, muscular adaptation, hypertrophy, things like that, and you haven't spent much time practicing. You've only been doing one rep. So instead, maybe doing three reps at what would be a five RM, so a three three rep set at an eight RPE, is maybe a better way to go about it. And so you're getting more volume. Now getting nine, you know, three sets of three. You're now getting nine high quality reps. They're not one hundred percent, but they're ninety percent. So if we think about which one has a better skill effect. Yes, the 1RM is as pure and sport specific as you will for the 1RM, but the three sets of three allows you to do nine reps practicing really high force production. If you think of it as a practice thing, not a training thing. And so within that velocity then becomes important because the velocity of those reps determine their quality a little bit to a degree. So if you're lifting week one, you go and you do your three sets of three and they're all about a 0. 0.4. So it's tough. It's getting close to your, you know, 1RM type velocities, but there's still a bit in the tank. So, you know, 0.4, the next week you come in and you're feeling like crap. You're tired, you're fatigued, and they're all around a 0.35. Those three reps are now a much harder stimulus on your body because of the slow velocity. The slow velocity uh, is a way of inferring and suggesting that there's fatigue in the system. And so that session is now a lot harder. And so you might be in a session where you're really fatigued going into the session you do your three by three challenging reps, which are now a, a harder stimulus than they were last week relative to your fatigued state. And so we've now actually for week three, after that we're now actually accumulated two weeks worth of fatigue and we're going into week three, even more fatigued. So this is where the idea of auto-regulation comes in. So we want to find an appropriate stimulus for the version of the athlete that showed up for the gym on the day. So I might do my testing a month ago and have a 200 kilo squat, But if I step in that gym in week three, my, know, one RM predicted for the day, if we want to call it that, is actually only 170. So those triples I'd planned to do at 170 are actually now above what I physically could do. I'll actually fail on those sets, maybe on the second or the third set. So that's now a really tough session. Now, a single tough session every now and again is probably good for you. You want to push your limits and that's the whole point of getting stronger, Is You want to find where your limits are and see if you can make them further along, get stronger, produce more force and develop that skill if you do that week on week on week of pushing yourself to the point or really close to the point of failure, and along the way, accumulating fatigue every week because you're not recovering well between the sessions because you've done too much work, there's really good research that says training to failure like that, training close to, repeatedly training close to or beyond your you know technical failure, literally having to have the spotter lift the bar off your, off your chest, that is actually now counterproductive to strength because you're Smashing your nervous system, you're exhausted, and you're not developing the skill in a good way, in a smart, strategic way. So, doing sub maximal sets, lots of sets, more sets, but not at your actual RM, your rep max limit. So, doing threes at a five RM, doing ones at a three RM, so leaving a couple in the tank on each set, is better for the long term. Each session might not be the maximum you could do in that session, but you can then string together pretty decent, really good sessions that might not be maximal, but they're close enough that you can recover from them and do it again in 48 hours, 72 hours and do it again and again, and again. And that allows you to compound strength over time. So expressing strength in one session is nowhere near the same as developing strength over a six month block. And I think that's really important. So that's where velocity loss comes in. So velocity loss, typically 40% velocity loss from your best rep to your last rep in a single set is pretty close to failure. Not many people can push beyond 40% without technical failure. So if you're doing sets of six to two reps and you're, and you're accumulating 35, 30, 40% velocity loss in those sets, that's RPE 9 stuff. That's RPE 10 stuff. And so that's the kind of training that makes it hard to recover from. On the other side though, 15 to 30%, 15 to 25% seems to be the sweet spot. There seems to be really good research that doing your sets of three by five, whatever the your, your prescription is, five by three, whatever it might be, doing those sets only to 20, 25% velocity loss seems to lead to better strength and hypertrophy adaptation. So you're better off doing, you know, instead of doing three sets of five with 40% velocity loss, you're better off doing five sets of three with 25% velocity loss. You'll get a better result, same volume. You'll get a better result though because they're crisper and you're not pushing your body to its limits. So you can recover and do that same session in three, four days time and put together more good sessions. that answer your question (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah. of course cool love it so uh pretty glad i invite you
1: (laughs) yeah thanks for having me on we had a couple of technical difficulties over the last couple of weeks we were supposed to do this uh two weeks ago and then last week i had a wi-fi problem we got our timings wrong but i'm glad we we got on the call finally
0: yeah so if there's like coaches are interested in what we're talking about today where can they reach out to and again what's the app the name of the app and how yes. where can they find that
1: Yeah. so the app that i'm working on is i'm not doing the coding but i'm uh, I'm, the, I'm the lead sports scientist for the app it's called metric vbt so m e t r i c v b t uh it's on ios it's available for free so you can go download it create a free account and start using it within seconds um, it uses computer vision. So it uses just the camera on your iPhone to record the set, track the barbell and give you pretty accurate velocity numbers and range of motion data. Um, it's pretty simple at the moment. So we're adding more features and, and working on more stuff. So that'll be coming out over the, over the coming weeks and months. So keep an eye out for new features as we add it. Cause it is, is reasonably simple currently, but we're, we're developing. We're, we're, we're in the early stages. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me or get in touch or you disagree with what I've said, or you want to explore the idea further. I really appreciate and enjoy that discourse. So if you disagree with what I've said here, like let's have a conversation. Like I, I'm curious to hear about how other people use velocity-based training or would like to use velocity-based training because that will inform what we do with the app. We want this app to be by coaches for coaches. So I'm a coach with, with plenty of experience and we've, and we've got, still got our GMEs up and running. So we've got coaches in there who I'm getting feedback from all the time to build this app and build systems around velocity-based training. So you can reach me. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram, um, vbt coach all one word just is my handle on both. Uh, And I also have a website where I'm blogging a bit. So vbtcoach.com. I do some blogging and I do some YouTube stuff on um, that as well. So if you want to dive deep into the velocity zone stuff, I've got a three, it's about to be a four part series. Actually, I'm working on a fourth part as we speak a bit more practical with the velocity zones, Um, but I've got a series on um, my website. So if you just Google VBT coach velocity zones, I'm sure it'll pop up and you'll be able to read that. Uh, And yeah, let me know what you think. Um, happy to have conversations about it. I, th- I think this stuff's really interesting. I think VBT is still really young. I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, to explore its full potential uh, in training and coaching. So uh, yeah, let's let's explore that and let's make VBT better is kind of the goal. We want to make it simpler, more effective, but also more powerful.
0: Cool.